This is My Finest Work, where artists tell us the story behind their favorite projects to help us understand what makes a magnum opus. And I'm your host, co-founder of Dog Ear Creative, Dan Morrell. This is Dan Morrell. Welcome to My Finest Work. I met April White about 20 years ago when she was on staff at Philadelphia Magazine and I was a grad school intern. And more recently, I was lucky enough to call her a colleague at Harvard Business School. She's a friend and a rare talent. She's currently a senior editor and writer at Atlas Obscura. Before that, she was an editor at Smithsonian Magazine. And last year, she released The Divorce Colony, How Women Revolutionized Marriage and Found Freedom on the American Frontier, a fantastic book that she and I will talk about in this episode of My Finest Work. April White, welcome to My Finest Work. We're here to talk about your new book, The Divorce Colony, but I want to go back to the beginning of your career and how you got into it. What was your first writing job? So the first thing I got paid for was writing for the Lowell Sun, which was my hometown newspaper. And they would send this young correspondent to the absolute edges of the coverage area to cover very exciting zoning board meetings, essentially. This book is historical nonfiction. A lot of your writing, even for that we've done together, has been historical nonfiction. What came first? Like, did you get into writing first or did you get into history first? You know, I think I got into writing first. I was that, actually, you know what? I got into reading first. I was that kid whose parents had to say, no more than one book a day, please go outside. (laughs) The Lowell Sun at the time was an afternoon paper, and I loved when it would arrive. I was just very into consuming storytelling. So I think that's when it started. And then, actually, I wouldn't have been able to tell you how far back my interest in being a writer went, except that a friend recently sent me a page from our eighth grade yearbook. And in the yearbook in eighth grade, so at age like 12, I announced that I wanted to be a writer. So who knew that? (laughs) I I knew I wanted to do this for so long. But yeah, so I think one of the things I really liked about writing and about storytelling was you got to talk about anything you wanted to. It was a way to sort of explore all kinds of different worlds. And so some of that for me has been historical writing, which I really love. But it's also all kinds of other topics. It's asking people to explain things they know really well to me, and I love being able to do that. Yeah, and I want to talk about your process and what you like so much about parts of it. But I want to get into this book and its genesis. So this started out, I remember when you you were writing this piece, this came out in The Atavist, or it started rather as a piece in The Atavist in like 2015. How did you find that story? And I know you talk about this in the acknowledgements, but I want to get into that because I think it gets into your process. So I found it sort of accidentally. I knew I wanted to write a book like this. Early in my career, I helped other authors who are writing books like this do their research. And I love that research. I love hiding out in an archive and digging through old papers. That is just my happy place. So I knew I wanted to pursue something like this of my own. But you have to find that perfectly sweet spot between really interesting story that no one's written about, and there is enough historical record to support this storytelling. And I'd been looking for a long time. I knew I liked grand hotels, which were these huge structures at the turn of the century that were basically small towns in and of themselves. And so lots happened in these public spaces. And I was really interested in that, and I was researching that. And along the way, I saw the words, the divorce colony. And that was just a left-hand turn for me. It was, what is that and how do I learn more? And that's, that's how it started. 
Well, you talked about the sweet spots, finding the sweet spot, like knowing those elements of a story that will make it a good story, right? That you could not just sell to your friends, but also sell to like a larger audience, right? Can you define what some of those elements are? What makes a good potential story? You know, I am trying to find my next book right now. So we've been thinking a whole lot about that. And I wish I had some solid answers for you. In this particular type of work, in, in this narrative nonfiction work, it's really having a deep historical record, not necessarily all in one place, probably all over the world, as I learned from my last book, probably in these tiny little sentences that you can extract a lot of information from that the authors never anticipated in the first place. In photographs, you find in places you never expected. So having that deep historical record is really important. For me and the type of stories I want to write, being able to tell the story of people is really important. So mm -hmm. for me, I'm not interested in this grand sweep of history. I'm interested in the really small decisions, the individual relationships that reshaped how something happened. Mm. And so those getting as close to people as possible and understanding why they made the decisions they did is important to me as a storyteller and limiting in terms of figuring out <laughs> sort of what comes next. Uh, and then the third thing that's really important to me is I want to have something to say. I don't just want to tell you an interesting story. I want it to have some meaning. In The Divorce Colony, I will 100% admit that the first thing that caught my attention was the scandal. Like, I loved the headlines. <laughs> I just loved all of the insane stories that came out of that place. But as I dug in, what I realized is we had this moment in history that had been underappreciated as a tipping point for how we understand divorce today. And so I really think there's something we can learn about our lives from this story. The book has a distinct four-part structure. How long did it take for you to set upon that structure? So the structure was both obvious and really difficult. What the book does is it covers an almost 20-year period in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, when this place was known as the Divorce Colony. So it's a 20-year period in which South Dakota has or is perceived to have some of the laxest divorce laws in the country, and it attracts all of these prominent women to South Dakota to live there for three, six months, nine months a year in order to get divorces they would have been denied elsewhere. I knew that I wanted to tell this story through the experiences of the women who were taking huge risks and making big sacrifices in order to leave their marriages. But as close as I wanted to get to these women, I also wanted to tell you that full span of 20 years. And none of these women were in Sioux Falls for 20 years. Mm. So I needed to think about how to break up this story so I could still get very close to these experiences, but cover everything I wanted to tell you about the larger scope of history. And that's how I settled on telling the story through four different women who cover that span of time, who come to Sioux Falls for different reasons, married for different reasons, are divorcing for different reasons, and, as it turns out, were ways in which I could explore particular themes that I wanted to in the book. Uh, so the first character, Maggie, she is the niece of the Astor family, this incredibly influential New York family with all kinds of money. They basically were said to own New York at the time. 
And through her, I get to explore a lot of the religious angles around divorce because religion was important in her life. Religion was important in the fight in Sioux Falls. And I could use her to explore that theme while still telling her story. And then I go on to look at politics, to look at the law, and to look at sort of social issues through these other women in the book. So I I said this was both like obvious and hard. For me, it was obvious this is the way you were going to have to solve this story. It was less obvious to the editors I was trying to sell this book to. (laughs) There was a lot of pushback that I really needed to tell this story through one character. And I knew that even if they were right about that being a better sell, they were wrong about that being the way to tell this story. So ultimately, victory. One thing that struck me as I was reading this is it's history, right? And so by definition, that arc is chronological. But isn't that a challenge? How do you make decisions about scene when you already have a set chronology? You really have to make that a story within a set time frame. The challenge and for me, like the exciting thing about working with history is you only have what you have. Mm -hmm. So I went into this book having a certain number of specific scenes that I could put you in. Everything else I needed to tell you through those scenes or in exposition. But I I only had a certain number of moments where I could put you in the room. And so the book had to be structured around those moments. And so for me, it was important to have what is almost a perfect sort of top-line chronology. We, We move from beginning to end in terms of essentially 1891 to 1908 through the course of the book. But there are many, many nested stories under there that are not chronological. I tell you the stories of these women's families, of their marriages, that all go back to before their time in Sioux Falls. So it's a pretty complicated, if you try to break it down, a pretty complicated chronological structure. I'm just hoping the readers don't notice that. (laughs) But these scenes that you had, these sort of like pillars, right, that you could build around, how do you find those? Because they're very specific. The level of detail, given the span of time that's occurred, is incredible. Mostly really good luck. (laughs) I was lucky that this was a topic that was covered extensively by journalists of the day. And extensively by journalists in an era of yellow journalism, of the, of the type of journalism that just put all of this color and attitude into their stories. So I did get to get some scenes out of that. Now, the trick, and again, one of the things I love about historical writing like this, is that you get the, the outlines of that scene. There's a particular scene in which Maggie, the first character in the book, is sitting in a parlor in a hotel in Chicago This is while she's being hounded by the press. She's been discovered that she's in Sioux Falls. Her soon-to-be ex-husband has made all these accusations against her. And she's, she's run from Sioux Falls to try to, you know, take a little break in Chicago before her actual divorce trial. And that's important. She's going to have to sit in a courtroom and be questioned about her marriage before she can get a divorce. But she's in this parlor and there's a Chicago reporter who, who snags her for an interview. It's one of the few times she talks publicly about her ordeal. Really cool. Lots of great detail in there. But I want to be able to tell you more. So I need to know about this hotel. I need to know what would be in this parlor. I need to, you know, so I need to color in those details. And that is both a very fun and very time-consuming activity. 
But like you have to go find photographs maybe or, you know. Yeah, or descriptions, letters of people who've stayed there. There's so much work that gets done that has very little, seemingly very little to do with the story I'm telling. And it's really about painting the picture for you. I want you to know what it felt like to be there. Like, so this is a very complicated Lego structure, right? Like, or maybe that's always the way I think about my writing is that I build like the foundational pieces and then add on. And I know everybody thinks about it differently, but what is your process for writing? And and by that, I mean, like, not just the construction, but do you hold yourself up and like just feed yourself coffee or do you do it late at night? Do you do it with music? Do you hate music? What's that look like when you sit down to write? You know, it's really funny. I actually tell a story about you when oh, I no, talk about don't this. Do that. <laughs> no, no, no. You and I, um, this is this is back in the before times, just after I'd left to write the book full time. Uh-huh. I'd come up to visit you all in Boston and we'd gone to lunch. And you would ask me a similar question to this. You asked me if I was staying up all night drinking absinthe and throwing crumpled pieces of paper across the room. And I kind of wished writing was like that. I don't know how anyone got anything done back in those days. So my previous life as a writer was in food. Right. I did food writing, but then I also worked in cookbooks, largely helping chefs tell their story through recipes. Cookbooks are... Jenga towers. There are all these tiny little pieces that have to come together perfectly in order for this to balance. And so writing a cookbook is writing a series of lists. I know that's incredibly boring, but it is. (laughs) And I approach this book in a really similar way. Every detail of this, the things I know and the things I can't tell you but needed to to make you not want to ask about it because I can't tell you because it doesn't exist in the historical record. All those things are pieced together incredibly carefully. So really, my writing process is a series of long lists that I get to very satisfyingly cross things off of. Because you still write, you don't just write about history. You write for magazines all the time, you know, and you do reporting with live people. What is easier for you at this point to write about dead people or to write about the living? I prefer dead people. <laughs> you don't have to worry about getting on their schedule. Like <laughs> You can't libel the dead. Yeah, um, no, no shitty like mic audio issues. Exactly. Like, I get it. Yeah. So I think there's something really satisfying about being able to come at something from a distance and have some perspective on it. And so in writing a historical book, you get many, many layers of reflection on what that event looked like, not just the event itself. And so I really like being able to place something in a wider context and and tell you its importance. With modern day reporting, you can tell a great story, but you don't get from me that sort of second level, or at least not that distance that you can have some perspective on. So yeah, while you can have some fascinating conversations, and I love being able to get all my questions answered instead of just the ones they thought to write down the answers to 125 (laughs) years ago. I do appreciate being able to sort of slowly build up this picture as I can in historical writing. Yeah, and it's interesting that the whole book started as a magazine piece, and I think that gives us an opportunity to talk about how different it is to be edited and a magazine project as it is from a book project, right? Because you had some great editors at The Atavist. Oh, but yeah. what is that? How is that process different uh, on the magazine side from the book side? 
So I can only speak with the perspective of one narrative book project, although plenty of cookbook and, and sort of service book projects. What is really exciting and a really heavy responsibility in book writing is that the editor is largely there to help you accomplish your vision. Mm. So my wonderful editor in this book bought into my vision. That's, that's what she bought when she bought my proposal and then helped me realize that vision. So certainly I did not achieve that on my first draft. There was mm. certainly things that I needed her to help me figure out and puzzle through to get to that, that point we had agreed on. With magazine writing, however, and I say this as a magazine editor, the writer is not there really to recognize their vision. They're there to recognize the magazine's vision. Right. And so it's much more of a prescriptive relationship where the editor is, is telling you what needs to be done. Now, the reason for that, of course, is that the magazine understands its audience. Right. For a book, that audience changes a lot depending on what the book is. So there's a little more leeway there. So, but it's a really different experience, and I'm so grateful I've had other friends go through the process because I don't think I would have recognized how different the dynamic would be between book editing and magazine editing if I hadn't had other stories to, to learn from. And obviously, you have to develop a real relationship with that book editor. Like, there, there has to be a deep trust between you two, right? Yes, and not the easiest thing to do when, well, one, during COVID, um, yeah. and, and two, a lot of a book writing process is you alone in your house. And so it's a magazine writing process, but it's you alone in your house for a really long time with the book writing process. So the ratio of interaction with your editor to writing is, is really different in the book editing process. But yeah, it worked really well for me. But you also have to be reliant then on like a deep well of other people in the writing world, friends and colleagues who will like take a stab at your first draft, you know? Be oh, like, yeah. Does I, this suck or tell me? I mean, books are books are their own little I would say company, but I really mean like nonprofit where you get all volunteer work. <laughs> um, but you, you really have to set up your own structure around a book. And that for me all the archivists and librarians who were incredibly helpful to me through this process just out of goodness of their heart and interest in this project. I got some fellowships to help support this, which is, you know, another piece I had to do. Yes, I had uh, readers who agreed to read the first draft and offer honest and, and serious feedback. I also had dear friends who dealt with me every single day. Um, <laughs> dear friends who were like, totally against their wishes, my colleagues in this project. <laughs> so yes, you have to build your own structure around book writing. And I, I was lucky to have a, a great structure for that. So what I want to hear from you is like your favorite story of discovery from this book, like where you went to like you flew to, you know, some far flung place and like dusted something like that national treasure type story, maybe a little less Nicolas Cage-ish, but you know what I mean? Like what, what's that story that you tell people about? Like, I can't believe I found this. Well, there's first that first trip to Sioux Falls. So this is right after I've seen the words, the divorce colony. And I call up the current courthouse, the working courthouse in Sioux Falls. And I say, Hey, I'm looking for some divorce records from 1892. Do you have them? And they were like, yeah, and I was like, no, 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 but really, <laughs> do you have them? Because I'm going to fly across the country for this. And they were like, yeah, yeah, come on in. Uh, so I arrived there 
And the lovely office of the courts there was incredibly helpful. And they set me up, you know, in the room where they accept all the filings. So this busy room where lawyers and, and citizens are coming and going with these enormous ledgers, faded, leather-bound ledgers that list all of the court cases of 1892. And I just sit there for hours and, you know, go through every line. So I really loved that. And then, you know, one of the great things about going to Sioux Falls was there are still several buildings from this era that stand. So, so sort of seeing that physical fact was really, really amazing. One of them is a uh, a cathedral that was home to the most outspoken opponent of divorce in Sioux Falls. And I went up there, and it's a, still an operating parish, and I went up there and I met with the reverend there, and he was incredibly helpful and wanted to know all so much more about the history of their building and of their parish. And that's when I discovered that there were actually some windows hanging over the altar that were donated by Maggie, the first character in The Divorce Colony, and end up becoming this real point of controversy during her time there and after, and were, in fact, not hung until much later, but are now over the altar. So seeing the ways in which the story was still physically present in Sioux Falls uh, was really exciting to me. And then after the book came out, I got to go back to Sioux Falls and hold an event in the courthouse where these public divorce trials took place, and actually in the courtroom. And, and the wonderful people there who helped set this up got really excited about it, too. So we set the stage up exactly where the judge's bench would have been. And during that presentation, during that interview, I realized one thing that I, I didn't know when I was writing the book. The courtroom is essentially identical to what it would have looked like during this era. Different oh, wow. paint job, but otherwise has been restored to this era. And the acoustics are terrible and always have been. They complained about this back in the day. And to realize how your voice echoes in that room and to realize what that would have meant for these women who were sitting up there confessing the like most intimate secrets of their marriage and having this echo in this room was a detail I would have put in the book if I had known. Let me end this interview with something you mentioned at the outset. So you started this and I asked you about why you know, you wanted to be a writer. And you mentioned that. What grade were you in when you wrote that thing that said I'm going to... Uh, eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. So how has a career in writing been different from what you expected? And, and, and maybe in a way that other people wouldn't expect. I think when I tell people I'm a writer, they have sort of this image of someone writing a book for years on end, which I did, like, don't, don't get me wrong, and having sort of this, this sole focus. And I think of it as sort of an art pursuit, which in, in many ways it is an artistic pursuit. But the truth is, I'm a working writer. I have not had a job that hasn't involved working with words since I was 17. And that means taking a whole bunch of different projects Stuff you're excited about, stuff you're less than excited about, stuff you didn't think you were going to be interested in, but it turns out you love. Talking to all sorts of people you never expected to, using that in all kinds of different ways. So I think people, when they think about writing, I think when I thought about writing in the eighth grade, I thought I would sit down and I would do nothing but write this book. And then my masterpiece would come out and everyone would tell me how great it was. And no, a working writer is just like any other job. You're going to hit deadlines and respond to emails and all of those things. And I think I didn't recognize that at 12. But you were lucky 
at this point in your career that you did write a great book and everybody told you it was awesome. So like you did, you did actually achieve part of that vision that you had in eighth grade. Yes. No, absolutely. I just turns out you have to make money too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a side note. Didn't really know that in 12. It's a footnote. It's fine. April White, author of The Divorce Colony, thank you for joining us at My Finest Work. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to My Finest Work. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And please reach out to us with your feedback and ideas at mfw at dogearcreative.com. 